Blog Talk Radio.
Mwamba mubiai Mulu mawaji tanda Kwa wa waka yeme Mwena menshi Mawanye
Finally, we review some of the most pressing and burning issues in Africa and throughout uh, the international community. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude with the orchestra Bella Bella. Let's listen in. Yeah. Hey. 
kotimba yo batungi singa mingi Salu bilangana luka mosala ya limala Marie ye, Marie ye
bato ya pemeni bako kiko kamate Olingo ya ngana yoe bandana liyota Sokali makati eko mila verite ya kato Bungita veniro na bito
banda kite mamade ko kaki ko salanga boye isu mama poti kinga na banti maladia boyo e gomelinga banda kanenge tokorukana ko kwanyoto odeto kutana majili
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Friday, uh, November 26, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just heard the music of uh, the Bella Bella Orchestra uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, a compilation of uh, tunes uh, from uh, 1969, to 1971. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story uh, deals with the fallout uh, surrounding the identification of a new COVID-19 variant uh, in the Republic of South Africa. And according uh, to a news source, uh, Department of International Relations Minister Nalidi Pandor is hoping to meet uh, with her British counterpart, to discuss what her department called a rush decision to impose travel restrictions on South Africa. Uh, Germany, Israel, and Italy have now also followed suit and banned South African flights while the European Union has proposed prohibiting travel from the country. Uh, this comes after scientists confirmed a new variant, the B11529, uh, had been detected uh, in uh, the Republic of South Africa. Germany's travel restrictions on South Africa means only German nationals will be allowed to enter their country but will have a quarantine for 14 days upon arrival if vaccinated. Italy's uh, government is also banning entry to anyone who has traveled to South Africa, Lesotho, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Namibia, Eswatini, uh, over, over the last two weeks, uh, Britain has also moved to cancel all flights uh, from South Africa and neighboring countries from Friday afternoon. International relations spokesperson uh, Clayson Moniella said this was extremely worrisome. Uh, this is not a variant that should have pushed them this quickly to take this decision and in the way in which they are doing it. Uh, there is no doubt that these bans will have a huge impact on tourism and the country's economy. Some South Africans hoping to spend the festive season abroad are angry and frustrated that they won't be able to celebrate with their families as a number of countries impose travel restrictions following the detection of the new COVID-19 variant in the country. One person said, uh, I was meant to fly out on the 19th of December to go see my son and my mother for Christmas, and I haven't seen them since COVID trapped us here in South Africa. One citizen said, South Africa is a popular holiday destination during the December holidays for European holiday makers, and this ban is sure to have a negative impact on tourism and the overall economy. In other news, in the Horn of Africa, uh, according to the Ethiopian Herald newspaper, the Peace and Development Center International, they describe as a shady non-governmental organization operating in Ethiopia that hosted the diplomats who met with a TPLF official just this last past Sunday, is in full damage control mode. Uh, the center has taken down the names of prominent figures from the Who We Are section on its website. Uh, fortunately, there are still breadcrumbs leading to who they are, and the trail leads right into the White House. Founding members of the PDCI 
includes some of the wealthiest and most influential members of the Ethiopian diaspora, including Mimi Alamayehu, uh, who served as the executive vice president of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and who uh, was ranked uh, by Forbes as one of their, quote, 20 young power women in Africa, 2013, unquote. Over the past uh, two to three months, scores of those supporting Ethiopia over the Tigray conflict on Twitter have had their accounts suspended and deleted or have received warnings uh, for supposedly breaking its rule, while the pro-TPLF accounts have continued to tweet threads, make abusive comments, and promote their narrative. narrative. Another founding member is Danielle Johannes, uh, former U.S. ambassador to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Johannes is reportedly the center point of the contact inside the U.S. government. PDIC uh, members were among Ethiopians specially invited to the White House in the late summer to discuss the conflict with top officials, reportedly including Jeffrey Feltman, the U.S. Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa. The meeting was held just before Feltman traveled back to Addis Ababa in August. As Sputnik International noted uh, yesterday, the PDIC uh, has among its partners and uh, the United States Agency for International Development, quote, which is part of the U.S. State Department, unquote, and the National Endowment for Democracy, quote, a well-known and self-admitted Central Intelligence Agency front, both of which have uh, astroturfed uh, opposition parties and fundal funds uh, to pro-U.S. groups from Hong Kong to Nicaragua and beyond, unquote. It is worth noting, uh, according to Elizabeth Abate, that uh, the PDCI was formed on September of 2021, uh, September of 2020, with its website registered on November 3rd of 2020. On the evening of that November 3rd, the TPLF attacked outposts of the Ethiopian Northern Command. Another one of those involved uh, from the start has been Sinayat Fasia. Uh, who chaired the campaign to get Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus uh, appointed Director General of the World Health Organization. She has also served as his chief advisor. Tedros has made his sympathies for the TPLF crystal clear over uh, social media. And yet another is Kasun Kasi Kabede, the founder and managing partner of the lucrative private equity fund, Safios Growth Capital. Kasahun is also linked to the Washington think tank, the Center for Global Development, which published Mark Laucock's anti-Ethiopian hit piece, How to Destroy a Country, Does Ethiopia Have a Future? Just before he made the news of talk show rounds, mostly prominently on PBS NewsHour, Nick Schrifferin, Laucock is a non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Development. Many critics anticipate that uh, members of the Peace and Development Center International are now scrambling to deflect and deny the bombshell of the phone cam recording of their Sunday Zoom meeting in which prominent retired and still active diplomats met with a TPLF official, Berhan Gabra Christos. At the Zoom meeting, participants such as Tim Clark praised Berhan while Vicki Huddleston 
I hope the TPLF would, quote, have military success fairly soon, unquote. And Stefan Gumpert suggested, quote, you either hope that people around Abi, either in government or in the military, realize that this is going nowhere and might force him to, well, accept the succession of hostilities or force him to step down, unquote. Donald Yamamoto, a retired U.S. ambassador to Somalia, who still works with U.S. security officials, said, quote, Abi is not listening. Basenjo has not been extraordinarily helpful or very active, and so are there any other opportunities that you see, unquote. Another founding member of the PDCI is well-known entrepreneur Alini Gabri Mahin, uh, who set up the center's website. She issued a statement yesterday claiming her participation at the Zoom meeting has been, quote, deliberately misrepresented, unquote. But clips of her involvement spread rapidly on social media, and there are widespread calls for her to lose her job as Chief Innovation Officer for the United Nations Development Program. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In Sudan, uh, the masses took to the streets in the capital and many other cities uh, earlier today and yesterday in what was called a Million People March of Loyalty to the Martyrs to protest the military coup and the Hamdak Burhan deal. Protesters in the three cities of the capital chanted slogans calling for the full civilian government, uh, rejecting the political agreement between the army commander-in-chief and the prime minister, and called to hold accountable those who killed 42 people since uh, the October 25th uh, military coup. The demonstrators closed some streets in the suburbs of Buri, Satan Street, east of Khartoum, Shambat, El Shabia, and the institution in Khartoum North by setting up barricades. There was no heavily deployment of police forces with the exception of several strategic locations in Khartoum North and Khartoum. Police forces fired tear gas to disperse protesters on Al Abiyin Street in Abdaman in response to some protesters who threw stones at them. About 14 youth were wounded by gas canisters, activists say. Other cities, including El Abiyid in North Kordofan State and Madani in Gezira State, witnessed mass protest as well. The Sudanese Professional Association accused the police of using excessive force against the demonstrators, adding that several people sustained grave injuries. For its part, the police dismissed the accusation, saying uh, they did not seek to disperse the protest and only responded to a violent attack by some groups that used Molotov cocktails and stones against the police, Central Station in Abdurman, Safia Station in Khartoum North. Prime Minister Hamdok made a short stop at one of the protests in Khartoum, where he saluted some uh, forces for freedom and change figures that took part in the procession, but he did not make any statement. On Wednesday, he directed police commanders to protect the demonstrations to ensure the right to peaceful protest. It is worth mentioning that the authorities did not close the bridges linking Khartoum, it's Khartoum's three cities, uh, as it had used uh, during the previous protest. Already there are calls for another protest on uh, November uh, the 28th in just uh, two days' time. 
And finally, uh, in the southern African state of uh, Zimbabwe, gender activists continue to challenge harmful cultural practices that perpetuate gender inequalities and expose women and girls to risk of violence and abuse. Across the world, women and girls face violence every single day. However, the COVID-19 pandemic made the year a little more difficult for some. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, reports show that all types of violence against women has intensified, worsening this already pervasive human rights violation. In an interview, the Women Action Group WAG Executive Director Mrs. Maria Shawira said issues of harmful cultural practices need to be addressed urgently uh, as they are the root causes of gender-based violence. Quote, the 16 days of activism must serve as a call to action to every Zimbabwean to take a stand and to make a bold statement against all forms of gender-based violence. Homes should be safe spaces. The workplaces must be a happy place, free of harassment. School must be a safe place. There must be no space that is tolerant to abusers, unquote. Mrs. Masiwa also said response mechanisms should be strengthened and to avoid delays in the reporting cases of abuse. In Zimbabwe, about one in three women aged 15 to 49 have experienced physical violence, and about one in four women have experienced sexual violence uh, since the age of 15. As a strategy to tackle gender-based violence, the 16 Days of Activism campaign was initiated. This period started on November the 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and Girls, and it will end on Human Rights Day, December the 10th. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of Africans uh, throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Uh, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. These programs uh, can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The links can be shared by copying and pasting them on blogs and websites. The links can also be shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. 
This is uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, uh, November uh, the 26th, uh, 2021. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, that was uh, the voice of Betty Wright uh, with the tune entitled Pure Love. And um, yesterday uh, was Thanksgiving in the United States. And of course, the holiday is based on one of the many myths uh, as it relates to the historical development and the social impact of that uh, historical development and context on uh, indigenous people and Africans uh, inside uh, what is today known as the United States. We're going to listen uh, to a interview, a rare archival audio file, uh, this uh, examines the relationship between uh, Africans and uh, some of the uh, Native American nations uh, in the southern part of the United States. Let's listen in.
and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. So many stories and agendas and racial and power dynamics converge in today's story, or rather the story told by an historian named Barbara Krauthammer. There's the story of the U.S. government's brutal treatment of Native Americans. There's the story of Christian missionaries sent to convert and, quote, civilize Native peoples. There is the fact that Native Americans in the southern U.S. owned slaves of African descent. There's also the story of racial ideologies, how whites viewed Indians and African Americans, how Indians viewed their black slaves, and how slaves viewed their Native American masters. Barbara Krauthammer's work reveals the complex dimensions, dynamics, and contradictions that, among other things, trouble the bright-line distinctions we tend to make between colonizer and colonized. Krauthammer is an associate professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of Black Slaves, Indian Masters, Slavery, Emancipation, and Citizenship in the Native American South. She also contributed a chapter about missionaries, slaves, and Native Americans to the volume Formations of United States Colonialism, edited by Alyosha Goldstein and published by Duke University Press. When Barbara joined me from the studios of WMUA in Amherst, Massachusetts, I asked her to describe the U.S. government's strategy in relation to Indians living in the Deep South in the early 19th century. I think the U.S. government's relation to Native Americans in the Deep South in the early 19th century was complicated. On the one hand, there were certainly many people in the government and many civilians who wanted, with perhaps the best of intentions, perhaps not, wanted to recognize Native people's sovereignty and rights to their territory, rights to self-government. But I think the story that perhaps people are more familiar with is the story of the rapid expansion of plantation slavery and plantation agriculture. And so I think the economic and social and political demands generated by Southern landowners, Southern land speculators, Southern politicians to open up more land to plantation agriculture, to that plantation regime, really drove the pressure to start the removal process, right, that forcible removal of Southern nations to the West. And that was a process that had roots that dated back to the American Revolution, right? As early as the American Revolution, early U.S. politicians were already thinking about how to consolidate U.S. control over that southern territory. But the process really gained momentum and strength and violence by the 1820s, 1830s. So the U.S. government wanted to relocate Indians westward in order to open up lands for plantations. Right, for white landowners, for white men to own land and to make that land um, what seemed in the eyes of white Americans to be profitable, right, to generate capital and wealth. And what other agendas or designs did the U.S. government have in relation to the Indians in terms of either assimilating them or just generally what they wanted to turn the Native Americans into, into what kind of people? Right. Well, this is always the complicated and contradictory aspect of federal policy and um, 
benevolent societies, religious organizations, stance towards Native peoples in the Deep South, right? That simultaneously there was a sense that Native peoples could and should be assimilated into the American mainstream, right? The dominant white society. And that that assimilation could take place through conversion to Christianity, through English language education, um, through things like changing cultural patterns, changing dress and domestic lifestyles, changing gender roles. So really a full-scale cultural assault, if you will. And on the one hand, there was a sense that Indians could be integrated and assimilated into the mainstream society. And yet at the same time, I think there was always a sense of white supremacy that Native peoples could never fully become like white people, right? That they could adopt the cultural and economic and social patterns of the dominant society and be recognized as, let's say, aspirational, but that white Americans were probably not inclined to recognize Native peoples as truly equal. You write that the federal authorities hoped to push Indians to adopt the practices of American yeoman farmers. Right, that I think there was a sense that if Native peoples could be convinced um, or forced to own the land as private property as opposed to owning the land as a commons, which those southern nations owned their land in common, right? Anyone who could farm and work the land could claim a piece of that land to work. And in the American um, system, people own land as private property and use that land to generate private wealth. And so I think there were for many people a vision of Native peoples becoming small landowners, small farmers, individual entrepreneurs, with the, the notion being that that would make them more like white Americans rather than less. What did the organizations that sent missionaries to Indian lands in the Deep South, like lands in Mississippi where the Choctaw lived, what did these organizations, these mission organizations, think of the way the feds treated Indians? I think missionaries and the churches that sponsored them had multiple visions of how the federal government treated Native peoples. I think on the one hand, missionaries saw themselves as benevolent. I'm not sure the Native peoples they lived among necessarily agreed with that perspective, but I think the missionaries believed that they were benevolent even when their treatment was harsh, right? Even when they imposed harsh discipline, corporal punishment, um, you know, berated Native students in their schools, for example. I think they, they, the missionaries, believed that they were really being benevolent in that they were safeguarding Native communities from being overrun by white settlers, for example. At the same time, I think missionaries took a very critical and harsh view towards the Native peoples that they were ostensibly being benevolent towards, right? That they were very critical of the lack of Christianity, of the unwillingness, right, of Native resistance to Christianity, of Native resistance to dominant Anglo-American gender roles, for example. And so I think missionaries were in a, in a bit of a bind and put themselves in that bind. You mentioned that part of the agenda of, of the missionaries, or at least some of them, was to safeguard 
the native peoples from being overrun by white settlers. So does that mean that they disapproved of the way the federal government was encouraging this white settlement and this dislocation and displacement of native peoples? Yes, well, I think their disapproval was directed um, perhaps more towards individual white squatters and intruders. And I think there was a sense as well that the federal policies towards native peoples were too aggressive and were not humane. And so while missionaries were very much steeped in and embraced ideals of white supremacy, I think they also fancied themselves as better humanitarians than the federal government, and so that they really saw themselves as protecting Native communities from being physically assaulted by white vigilantes, white squatters, white land speculators, who they saw as having no regard for Native people's lives. Well, this is an interesting question. The extent to which the missionary project fit within a kind of broader project to colonize and subjugate indigenous people and their land. So to what extent did missionaries see themselves as proxies for the, the U.S. colonial project? I think they saw themselves as proxies certainly for the social and cultural aspects of the colonial project, right? That they really believed in their Christianizing mission. They really believed in inherent and abstract values of English language education, of adopting American styles of dress, American gender roles and labor patterns. And so I think they were wholly committed to that and did not have an especially critical stance towards that. Um, and I think in many respects they were committed to the attendant changes in economic patterns right, that they envisioned Native peoples remaining perhaps self-governing or quasi-self-governing, but really as um, an appendage to the American economy and the American social and cultural mainstream. We could see the effort to convert Native Americans to Christianity as separate and apart from the project of appropriating and acquiring and taking Indian lands. Do you see those two projects as distinct? I don't. I actually think that they're interwoven because the sense among federal officials, among so-called reformers, and among missionaries was that that idea of being an independent landowner, generating wealth for one's own benefit, for one's family, was very much tied to what were seen as Christian ideals, right, of being virtuous and thrifty and diligent and hardworking. And so all of these ideals were really understood as Christian ideals. And so that conversion really went hand in hand with those sort of coercive changes in labor, in land ownership, in tribal sovereignty. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Barbara Krauthammer joins us. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she's author of Black Slaves, Indian Masters, Slavery, Emancipation, and Citizenship in the Native American South. So you've investigated specifically, well, you've investigated many things, but I want to talk to you about your investigation into the lands that the Choctaw Indians 
occupied, resided on in Mississippi in the early 19th century, and the missionaries who came to set up shop there. And maybe we could begin with some basic facts about the Choctaw Indians and where they lived in this area and how long they had been there. Sure. The Choctaws claimed, by the early 19th century, the Choctaws claimed almost all of what we know as the state of Mississippi as their territory. And their right to that territory had been recognized by European empires, the Spanish, the French, the British. Um, Their claims to that territory came under assault in the years after the American Revolution, And then after the U.S. gained control of that Louisiana territory, after Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase, and their claims to the territory come under assault because of the rivers that run through that territory, because of access to New Orleans and trade routes that Americans were now interested in controlling and capitalizing on. Choctaw routes in the Mississippi Territory went back hundreds, thousands of years, right? Um, and there are many wonderful studies about the ancient Mississippi kingdoms and chiefdoms in the region. But certainly, right, we can think back to the 16th century and early records by Europeans arriving in that region and interacting with the early um, Choctaw peoples, right, the peoples who would coalesce into the Choctaw nation of the 19th century. And by the time the missionaries arrived in Choctaw Territory in the early 1800s, to what extent had the tribe or parts of it been displaced already, made to give up their lands prior to 1818, 1820? So prior to the 1820s, small factions had been displaced, partially in consequence, um, as a consequence of intertribal rivalries, but really the large-scale displacement doesn't happen until the late 1820s and the early 1830s. And so there's this moment in time when missionaries arrive in the Choctaw Territory in Mississippi and build schools and churches and mission stations. And the Choctaws have a complicated, intense relationship with those missionaries Because I think on the one hand, there's a sense, at least among some Choctaw leaders, that hosting the missionaries and accepting the missionary presence might be a good strategy for ultimately safeguarding Choctaw territory and Choctaw political autonomy, right? That is, by accepting these envoys from the United States, these sort of quasi-independent quasi-governmental representatives, that Choctaw leaders might be able to position themselves and their nation as willing allies with American economic agendas, American social values, American cultural and religious practices. But that's a very short-lived moment. And I want to get back to that, this interesting question of what the Indians believe they could acquire from, appropriate from the missionaries and the education provided by the missions to their advantage, to the Native Americans' advantage. But before we get there, there's an interesting fact that I don't think is widely known, and that is, as you claim, Choctaw Indians 
Some of them owned slaves. Many Southern Native peoples owned African Americans as slaves, as property, as chattel. And the interesting history that is not very widely known, though I think is gaining some ground, is this interesting moment in the 1700s under French colonialism, Spanish colonialism, British colonialism in this southeastern territory, a shift in Native patterns of captivity and subordination. And so peoples like the Choctaw, for example, had previously held other Native peoples as subordinates and servants. And after many generations of contact with colonial officials, Spanish, French, and British, and after many years of encountering the rise of African enslavement in North America, there's a slow but definitive shift among the Choctaws and many other Native communities, a shift away from holding other Native peoples as subordinates and servants towards taking Africans and African Americans as subordinates and keeping them in a subordinate position, right? That is not opening ways for people to gain freedom or greater autonomy, not opening ways for people to be fully incorporated into a host society, but drawing stark divisions based on ideas of race or innate biological and ancestral difference and creating these different categories that some people were servants for life and that that category was a lifelong condition and was also one that was inherited, right, that was passed from mother to child. And what we see among the Choctaws is by the late 1700s that that idea of slavery being lifelong and inherited and also associated with African ancestry really takes root among the Choctaws um, as it does among other southern Indian peoples. How prevalent was this slaveholding by Indians of people of African descent? And what did the missionaries think of the Indians' ownership of slaves? Slaveholding among the Choctaws and Chickasaws and other southern nations, in terms of percentages, looks fairly like slaveholding among white southerners, right? That the majority of enslaved people are owned by a small minority of native slaveholders, then that the majority of that wealth is also concentrated in the hands of a small elite class of plantation owners, but that certainly there were many more native peoples who owned only a few enslaved people, one or two who worked on small farms with them. The missionaries, again, had a complicated relationship with native slaveholders. On the one hand, missionaries were very committed to their project of assimilating native peoples. And to that extent, while missionaries professed their anti-slavery sentiment, they were nonetheless willing to tolerate native peoples ownership of African Americans, right? And believed that that was the price they might have to pay for converting native peoples for enticing Native peoples to participate in this um, acculturation project of theirs. At the same time, missionaries could often be very critical of Native slaveholders. But what's interesting 
I found is that their criticism is voiced in terms that echoed prevailing racist sentiment towards Indians. That is, that missionaries would criticize Indian slaveholders for being especially bloodthirsty, especially cruel, lacking Christian benevolence like white slaveholders have. And so there was this sort of rhetoric that native slaveholders were bloodthirsty and savage. And at the same time, there was another seemingly contradictory rhetoric that said native slaveholders were absolutely lax and lenient and were nothing like white slaveholders because, of course, they lacked that Euro-American drive for wealth and property accumulation and so that they were actually bad slaveholders, missionaries said, because they didn't know how to fully exploit black labor. Well, there is a notion out there, and it's held by many, that Indians, by virtue of their Indianness, were somehow more lenient and more benevolent masters. What should be said about that? Well, I think there are a lot of things we can say about that. In part, what interested me about this project that I did was thinking about how those ideas of Indians as benevolent masters in many ways reflect that history of colonialism, right, of missionaries and other white Americans looking at Indians and saying, oh, they're so different from us. They don't understand capitalism. They don't want private wealth. And so they're flawed at keeping black people properly subjugated and properly exploited. And so I think there's an interesting history of racism underlying that narrative of Indian leniency. And at the same time, I think that there is a history of African-American, Native American alliance and joint um, efforts to resist U.S. imperialism and domination and to resist white supremacy. And so I think some parts of that narrative of Native willingness to recognize black people's humanity comes from that very real history of joint opposition to that colonial project. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Barbara Krauthammer is my guest. She teaches history at UMass Amherst. And she contributed a chapter about missionaries, slaves, and Native Americans to the volume Formations of United States Colonialism, edited by Alyosha Goldstein and published by Duke University Press. And that chapter encapsulates some of what Barbara wrote in her book, Black Slaves, Indian Masters. Uh, We are talking specifically about the dynamics of power and control that arose as Indians, slaves, and missionaries encountered each other in the Deep South in the early 19th century. So let's delve deeper into this, um, the perceptions held by Choctaws toward the missionaries who moved into their communities. So on the one hand, you have these missionaries condemn the slaveholding of blacks, of people of African descent, by Indians, And on the other hand, as you said earlier, that some, at least some Choctaws, welcomed the missions to the degree that they saw the missions as a way of maybe helping their cause, helping their communities. What was the basis for this sense that, you know, maybe the missionaries and their political views might help me, or maybe something I learn at the missionary schools or churches could help me and help my community combat 
some of the pernicious agendas directed at Indians? Chaka leaders were terrifically savvy politicians, political strategists, um, and diplomats, right? Were terrifically savvy at negotiating and navigating that shifting terrain of diplomatic relations with the U.S. government. And I think that Choctaw leaders were acutely aware that they were in a precarious position in terms of their right to their territory and their right to self-government. And one of the strategies that many, certainly not all, but that many leaders embraced or flirted with sometimes was the strategy of welcoming missionaries with the goal not so much of Christian conversion. I don't think that was driving their interest in welcoming the missionaries. But I think many leaders understood that if their children gained English language education, gained greater familiarity with the American market economy, with American economic practices, gained contacts, right, personal contacts with American political figures, leading merchants and bankers, for example, that they would be in a better position to do two things. First, to say to U.S. leaders, look, we're doing exactly what you wanted us to do, right? We've taken up private property. We've taken up commercial agriculture, right? We are as civilized as you asked us to be on the one hand. And then on the other hand, they were also hopefully positioning themselves to better defend themselves, right? To say, right, we will speak in English and argue for our right to national sovereignty, right? Argue for our rights to safeguard our borders and our territories. And so I think that interest in courting the missionaries was really about gaining access to the tools that the federal government was trying to use against Native people, and that it was this very savvy decision to say, well, we will take those tools and use them for our defense. And to what degree was this balanced by the sense that we need to be suspicious of these missionaries? They may try and abolish slavery in our midst, that kind of thing. Right. Well, there was always a sense among those Native leaders who opposed any interaction with the missionaries to those who fully embraced interacting with the missionaries, there was always a skepticism of the missionaries' stated agenda and unstated agenda. And so there was always this sense that these anti-slavery missionaries were going to come and disrupt the existing um, economic patterns and wealth that was being generated through the ownership of enslaved workers. And so there is, on the one hand, this real concern that missionaries are going to disrupt the patterns of social and economic life in Choctaw territory. And there's also an understanding that this disruption itself is part of a colonial project, right? It's part of this insistence on the part of missionaries and federal agents to say, we know better than you about how your society should operate. Your article in Formations of United States Colonialism begins with the dispatching of missionaries by the Boston-based American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions in the summer of 1818 to the Choctaw Indians Territory in uh, Mississippi. And so they, they go to this area, they set up shop, and 
you note, in fact, well, they noted that a number of black slaves, so black slaves owned by Choctaw Indian slaveholders, attended the public worship services held at the mission. What was behind this, and what motivated blacks to go to these um, worship services? So enslaved black people went to mission churches because many of them were practicing Christians, had Christian roots and ties to black churches and black communities in other parts of the Deep South, those places from which they had been sold to Choctaw Territory. So I think for some people it was a way of continuing not just their religious faith, but a sense of connection to the communities that they had been separated from. I think many enslaved people fully recognized the tense relationships between Native peoples and missionaries. And I think they often saw opportunities within those tense relationships between Natives and missionaries to better their own condition. That is, they found opportunities at the mission stations to gain some autonomy, right? To go to church meant not working for a few hours, right? Finding a way of escaping from a labor regime, for example. Finding a way to have social interactions and contact with other enslaved people that they might not have encountered in their daily routines. Did the missions give enslaved people opportunities to resist the control of their Native American masters? I don't know that the missionaries gave those opportunities for resistance as much as the enslaved people created and seized those opportunities. That is, I don't think the missionaries were really intent on pursuing an anti-slavery or abolition campaign among the Native peoples where they were living and working. I do think that the enslaved people saw opportunities to um, ameliorate their condition, right? Whether that took the form of laboring at the mission stations rather than on their owners' farms and plantations. Some enslaved people, for example, successfully negotiated to have missionaries hire them as laborers rather than remain on their master's farms or plantations. And I think that for some enslaved people, that was an opportunity to distance themselves from what could be a grueling labor regime on a plantation. Some enslaved people were able to capitalize on missionaries' discomfort with chattel slavery by convincing missionaries to purchase them, purchase that enslaved person, and allow him or her to work off the price of their purchase, right? That is a sort of gradual emancipation through a negotiated labor arrangement. But that was not so often initiated by the missionaries, and I think much more often initiated by enslaved men and women themselves. Can you talk about the extent to which these black people engaged in spiritual practices away from the missions and also from their masters? So many enslaved people in the Choctaw communities look to the mission stations as one outlet for Christian practices, but it seems clear from the records that people are also gathering on their own 
gathering just in communities of enslaved people, often at night, often in secret, to worship according to their own traditions, their own beliefs, um, with their own interests and goals in mind. And this, I think, resonates very much with what we know about enslaved people's religious practices throughout the South um, in the early 19th century, right? That there's a fair amount of evidence that allows us to consider the ways in which enslaved people look to Christianity as both a sword and shield, right? As a way of sort of relieving themselves of the sense of burden of their enslavement and also as the source of inspiration for combating their exploitation, either directly resisting their masters or having a sense of spiritual deliverance in the future. And there's some really lovely records that talk about the preachers who emerge from the enslaved community in the Choctaw Nation, of people who meet just with other enslaved people, who preach to them, who teach them. Um, there are some accounts of people singing, gathering to sing spirituals at night or to sort of steal away from the fields and replenish their souls and their sense of community with each other through religion. How does this play into what the late feminist historian Stephanie Camp called a rival geography? Stephanie Camp's work was so central to my thinking about this idea of the use of space and different people's competing uses of space in the Choctaw Nation. And certainly, I think, the ways in which enslaved people seized and used space within the nation, whether it was the space at the mission stations or spaces in the woods or in the fields for their own purposes and infused those spaces with meanings that had value to enslaved people is very much in line with Stephanie Camp's idea of rival geography, right? That is that plantation owners have a view of space in terms of work and control and subordination and enslaved people used those same spaces for their own purposes and with their own interests and often at odds with their master's desires. Barbara Krauthammer is my guest. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's author of Black Slaves, Indian Masters, Slavery, Emancipation, and Citizenship in the Native American South which is the first full-length study of chattel slavery and the lives of enslaved people in the Choctaw and Chickasaw Indian nations. And she's also co-author with Deborah Willis of the book Envisioning Emancipation, Black Americans and the End of Slavery. You can find links to Barbara and her work on our website, againsttothegrain.org. Okay, so we have this complex dynamic on the one hand, you have these black slaves, then you have the Choctaw Indians, many of whom own these black slaves. You have the missionaries coming in, you have the white settlers coming in, you have the federal government with its agenda. I'm interested in how Euro-American elites compare the racial traits and the perceived racial fitness of Indians on the one hand and black people on the other? I think for the most part in the early 19th century, certainly among many Euro-Americans, there was a sense that Native peoples had much greater potential or 
what we might what they might have called much greater racial fitness as it were for assimilation into the American mainstream and I think there was always a sense that people of African descent could never be assimilated into the American mainstream. Even among those people, missionaries included, who claimed to abhor slavery, certainly in the early 19th century, that abhorrence of slavery, I think, was based more on sort of ideas of humanitarianism rather than an actual interest in black people's individuality and individual humanity. You also write that certain missionaries did look more favorably on black believers than perhaps on Indian non-believers. Right. So that was another interesting and certainly very contradictory aspect to the research that I did, that I think missionaries were in many ways very sympathetic towards black believers, black Christians, and in many ways relied on them to aid the colonial project of converting Native peoples, right? That many enslaved African Americans in the Choctaw Nation could speak both English and the Choctaw language. And so the missionaries relied on them to work as interpreters and translators. And so I do think that the missionaries felt a sense of Christian affinity with enslaved believers And yet, on the other hand, I don't think the missionaries ever saw the enslaved African Americans as fully human, as people who really merited true autonomy and human dignity. How were the blacks who were, who did become interpreters, intermediaries of a sort between the missionaries and the Native Americans, how were these blacks treated? So they were treated fairly well by the missionaries because the missionaries were really dependent on them, right? So a really interesting reversal of what we think of as the more familiar racial hierarchy of white dominance and black subordination, that this was a moment where missionaries would write that they were really dependent on the services of their translator and interpreter because those were the people who had not only the language skills, but also really a sense of cultural fluency and could serve as cultural brokers between the missionaries and Native peoples. What about how enslaved blacks thought of their Indian masters, in this case their Choctaw Indian masters? I think the range of opinion that enslaved people had about their masters in many ways parallel the kind of things that we see coming from enslaved people in other parts of the South. That is to say, many enslaved people spoke sometimes quite openly and sometimes in veiled terms about their master's cruelty, right, about the separation of children from their parents, for example, right, the sale of children. And so there's some really striking testimonies of women remembering the sound of crying babies being taken from their mothers and sold to traders who are passing through. And so I think there is a very clear understanding among enslaved people that their native masters in many respects hold the ultimate control over their lives, over their well-being. There is also a fair amount of evidence 
that indicates the sexual abuse of enslaved women, right? All of subsequent generations through the 19th century and through the Civil War of African Americans who claim Native ancestry will often give personal testimony either in official settings or to government agents, for example, or in less official settings, and will say things like, my mother was a slave and my father was her master. And they're certainly not talking about loving domestic scenes of marriage and household, right? They're much more likely gesturing towards histories of rape and sexual exploitation. So I think that is one important component that is sometimes neglected when we think about what's clearly a very troubling and painful history for many people. And certainly there were people who looked upon their masters with a degree of kindness and recognized their masters as being more humane rather than less humane in terms of the treatment they meted out towards enslaved people, right? So masters who did not separate families by sale or masters who did not beat their laborers. But that's a bit of a bittersweet pill, right, if you have to be grateful that you weren't whipped or grateful that you weren't sold away from your children, um, you know, puts gratitude, I think, in a difficult light. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Barbara Krauthammer is my guest. She's an associate professor of history at UMass Amherst, and she's author of Black Slaves, Indian Masters. We are talking specifically about a chapter she wrote about missionaries, slaves, and Native Americans in the U.S. Deep South a chapter that she contributed to the volume Formations of United States Colonialism. So as you write, the missionaries actually, they didn't get enough funding or they didn't get the funding that they desired so that they to some degree relied on Native American communities for funding and resources. And as you said before, earlier this hour, uh, I guess it was good that uh, some Indians did welcome the missions and missionaries into their communities and thus were able to provide the missionaries with some of the resources they needed. Something then did turn, though. There was sort of a change in Indian perceptions of missionaries. And, of course, it was always kind of ambivalent and different people thought differently of the missionaries. But what happened, especially in relation to laws, passed by the Choctaw that were very unfriendly toward the missionaries and their activities? As relations between the Choctaw Nation, the nation's leadership, and the U.S. federal government became increasingly tense, I think more Choctaw leaders became increasingly wary of the missionaries' presence in their nation and increasingly viewed missionaries not as a source of strategic tools and strategic information, but viewed missionaries more as outsiders who at the end of the day were going to ally themselves with the federal government and with U.S. colonial missions and interests. And so Choctaw legislators become increasingly um, take an increasingly harsh stance towards the missionaries and impose strict limits 
on the kinds of contact that missionaries can have with enslaved people. And so in part, it's a way of constraining the missionaries, right, by passing laws that say missionaries can no longer instruct enslaved people in reading and writing and can no longer permit enslaved people to learn to read and write at the mission stations. So there's that, those kinds of laws are being passed. And while they're definitely aimed at the missionaries, I would also argue that those laws are also aimed at enslaved people. And that those laws that are ostensibly directed towards curbing missionaries' contact with enslaved people, constraining missionaries' ability to move through the Choctaw Territory, for example, that those laws are very much about curbing enslaved people's access to autonomy at the mission stations, curbing enslaved people's opportunities to negotiate with missionaries for their purchase and ultimate manumission, and so that those laws really serve a dual purpose, and that ultimately what those laws represent is an attempt by the native government to bolster its autonomy, right, and to sort of reaffirm native people's right to self-government. And if we step back, um, you know, there's these categories, these names we assign to people like colonizer and colonized. And in your writings, you try and trouble that distinction, which is often presented as a very clear, demarcated line. So what have you told us this hour that you think plays into your effort to try and call that distinction into question? Well, I think all of this history, right, if we look seriously at Native American history in the U.S. South and in the U.S. as a whole, we certainly have to trouble some of the ideas about white supremacy, right, vis-a-vis African Americans. And initially that was what drew me to this work, that here were people negotiating about slavery but it wasn't just a contest between white and black, right? That there were Native peoples playing really important roles in what we think of as national debates in the United States about the future of slavery in the southern states. And so I think that by taking Native people seriously as historical actors, we necessarily change the terms and the terrain of our understanding of U.S. history. And I think that taking seriously the difficult and painful and often controversial dimensions of some of this history of African-American enslavement in Native communities can best be done with a degree of sensitivity towards the ways in which Native peoples were really brutally targeted and subjugated by the dominant U.S. culture and government and that at the same time, that never stripped them of their sense of agency and their sense of autonomy and their sense of self, right, of cultural viability, of political viability, and of determination. And that sometimes that played out, that sense of agency played out in terms of subjugating other peoples and in terms of negotiating between the institution of slavery, and U.S. efforts to subordinate Native peoples. 
And so I think that there are complex dynamics that once we really look at Native peoples seriously as historical actors and as fully developed, complicated people like everybody else in the story, that the terms automatically change. And I think one thing that makes your work so important is that the the place of enslaved Africans and African Americans in the very complicated relationships between missionaries and Indians and also in the larger story of U.S. efforts to subjugate Indians in the Deep South, that story has gone largely unexamined. Why do you think that is? I think there's an interesting parallel between the removal of Native peoples from the Deep South and the removal of Native peoples from our historical narratives, right? That there has been this erasure of Native American history and Native American peoples. And in part, I suppose the cynic in me would say that's the function of colonialism and white supremacy, right? This erasure and sort of a simplified narrative. I have really had the benefit of having a number of colleagues at different schools in different departments who have also been interested in this history of Native American, African American intersections. And so I think that there is a small but growing cohort of scholars and some really wonderful students and junior scholars who are really committed to thinking seriously about Native American history and the relationship between Native American history and what we call U.S. history. Well, could part of the explanation also lie in the fact that, you know, it's not really politically correct, perhaps, to bring up the fact that Indians owned blacks? Right. It's a, it's a difficult and painful history for many reasons to discuss Native people's ownership and exploitation of African Americans. And it's certainly not the only history of African American, Native American interaction in the Deep South, but I think it's an important history. And I think that we do ourselves and our students a disservice by ignoring it. And I think only by coming to terms with the complicated nature of this history can we better understand um, some of the current events that continue to revolve around the legacies of slavery and questions of race and racism in the West today? On againstthegrain.org, you'll find links to the faculty page of my guest, Barbara Krauthammer, who teaches at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, to her book, Black Slaves, Indian Masters, and to the book Formations of United States Colonialism, in which you can find the chapter that we have been discussing today. Thanks so much, Barbara, for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I want to thank Carolyn Gorse at WMUA for her technical assistance with today's program. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources and links, and a way to sign up for our podcast. 
and check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio. Welcome back. And uh, that was um, a discussion on the relationship between Africans and indigenous people, uh, principally uh, centered around uh, what is now known as the state of Mississippi among the Choctaw peoples. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal. Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice of Candy Staten with a tune entitled uh, Sweet Feeling. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Friday, uh, November 26, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. 
once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. My name is Abayomi Azikawe, and I am your host. And uh, right now we want to move into uh, Africa Live uh, from CGTN uh, for today, uh, November 26th. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. This orion has a large number of mutations that require and will undergo further study. The WHO meets over a new coronavirus variant as South Africa expresses dismay over the travel bans triggered by the discovery. Ethiopia's Prime Minister releases a video said to be from the battlefront of the war with TPLF. And China releases a white paper on its cooperation with Africa. Hello and a very warm welcome to Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Lindim Tongana in Nairobi. With me is Raman Yang with a preview of your business news. Thank you very much, Lindy. Here's what's coming up in the next half hour. Coming up in business, Zimbabwe sees 5.5% economic growth in 2022. And we'll tell you why Shell still hopes to find oil and gas deposits along South Africa's coastline. We'll have the details on those stories and lots more coming your way in the course of the hour. For now, let's start with the latest in current affairs with Lindy. Thanks, Rama. Well, in our top story, we start in South Africa, where Health Minister Joe Patla said on Friday that preliminary studies suggest a new COVID-19 variant detected in the country may be more transmissible, but the decision of other countries to impose travel restrictions is unjustified. Patla at a media briefing said South Africa was acting with transparency and that travel bans contravened the norms and standards of the World Health Organization. South African hospitals and health facilities are on high alert since the new variant was announced on Thursday. CGTN's Julie Shire has more. There's little known about the new COVID-19 variant B11529, which has caught scientists in South Africa by surprise. There seems to be more than 50 mutations compared to the original virus, and more than 30 of these are in the area of the virus that we are concerned about. That's the area that interacts with the human cells um, that causes infection. And uh, also that is the area of the virus that vaccines, for example, may target. And so if those areas have changed, vaccines may not work as well as they would have worked before. The new strain is spreading rapidly. Close to two dozen cases have been detected, most of them in the Hauteng province. I'm very worried about the new variant and I'm not sure if we're going to survive this one this time around. It's very stressful because now we have stopped attending classes like we had contact classes but we are no longer attending and we cannot go home as well. It makes me feel so sad, so frustrated, so uh, anxious. Because I feel like everything is just up. 
stopping, stopping my future, stopping everything, everybody's future. Travel to and from South Africa has been banned by several European countries. The United Kingdom had only recently removed South Africa from its red list after the third wave subsided in October. There is no country which would want to have a new variant. And we fully understand when countries ban South Africa, obviously bad news for us because it's just before the festive season and people have booked their tickets to come here. And, and there is not enough domestic tourists to cover the entire tourism value chain. President Cyril Ramaphosa will, with his command council on Sunday, decide the way forward. Another strict lockdown will hurt the economy and worsen a staggering 35% unemployment rate. We might actually get a situation where the borders might be closed. The internal borders in South Africa might be closed because of trying to stop the spread of this new variant. Obviously, it's unfortunate, but I think the most important thing is that South Africa comes first before tourism comes first. It's unclear for now if this new variant may cause a more severe strain than Beta and Delta that drove South Africa's second and third waves. Hospitals are, however, preparing for the worst. For South Africans traveling home, it could mean another bleak Christmas if restrictions are tightened and plans have to be put on hold. Julie Sharas, HTN, Cape Town, South Africa. Well, the WHO has hailed the speed at which the new COVID-19 variant was detected in South Africa. Scientists say the high number of mutations could evade the body's immune response and become more transmissible. South Africa has seen a surge in new cases in the past week. Health officials initially believed it was due to gatherings at universities. South Africa and its neighbors now have been slapped with several international travel bans since the new variant was reported. The UK has suspended flights from six African countries. Japan on Friday tightened border controls for visitors from South Africa and five other African nations. Hong Kong has also imposed restrictions on arrivals from Southern Africa. Early analysis showed that this variant has a large number of mutations that require and will undergo further study. It will take a few weeks for us to understand what impact this variant has. Researchers are working to understand more about the mutations and what they potentially mean for how transmissible or virulent this variant is and how they may impact our diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccines. This variant, the B11529, was reported at a remarkable speed. The first sequence was reported on 11 November. We are grateful for the researchers in South Africa and the experts on WHO's TAG um, group on virus evolution who are working on this. The detection of the Zerine means that the surveillance system is in place and is working. Meanwhile, Germany's COVID-19 situation is increasingly severe. New cases are hitting record highs and hospitalizations are on the rise. That's led to a renewed uptake for booster shots and after a sluggish start, the campaign is finally picking up momentum. Ryan Thompson reports from Frankfurt. Back in September, Germany's booster shot rollout started with a whimper rather than a bang. When infection rates were low, so too were the number of people coming to get their COVID-19 vaccination. As you can see, it's quite quiet around here, and officials say that only 20 people have showed up for it. Germany's own health minister was not happy with the progress. 
There have been just over 2 million booster shots given in Germany to date. That is clearly not enough. I would like to make this quite clear. The pace of the booster rollout is too slow. But that has all changed as Germany faces a fourth wave of the virus with infection numbers many previously thought were unimaginable. New cases are at levels not seen before in the pandemic and hospitalizations are on the rise. Lines now stretch around the block at vaccination clinics and many people are showing up for boosters who aren't yet eligible. The recommendation of the Vaccine Commission is for people 70 years and over and for those with pre-existing conditions. We try to find these people and make sure they get their shots. And you see the queues down here, even though we're not open yet. Let the old ones get their shots and then the 30-year-olds can come when it's time. Germany has recently introduced new rules, which incentivize people to get vaccinated or stay home. In some places, no COVID jab means no access to restaurants or museums. This vaccination center in Frankfurt admits around 1,000 people per day, a 50-50 mix of boosters and first-time jabs, according to officials. Booster shots remain a patchwork of different policies across the EU. The reason is many health advisory boards have been hesitant so far to recommend them to the general population. And so was the case in Germany until early November when the health minister announced the expectation that everyone would receive a third shot six months after the second. Only a small minority in Germany received a one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So for them, their booster would be a second shot made with mRNA. For everyone else, the comments of Germany's top health official led to confusion as it directly contradicted the advice of independent vaccination experts in Berlin. The signal that Mr. Spahn has sent of course seems positive for the population, but it causes problems for us and for all municipalities because it goes against the rules we are working with. The issue has since been settled and booster shots for all over 18 years old will begin soon. But with surging COVID cases and no end in sight to the pandemic, inoculation centers like this one expect to be around for a while. Ryan Thompson, CGTN, Frankfurt. To Ethiopia now, days after he went to the battlefield, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has announced the recapture of important locations from TPLF rebels. Abiy says that he won't back down until the rebels are no longer a threat to the freedom and sovereignty of Ethiopia. Here's DGTN's Girum Chala with that story. The first footage of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed on a battlefield has surfaced on all state media platforms as breaking news. The Prime Minister was seen walking on a battleground alongside other army generals giving directions in uniform. In his message to the public, Abiy said, Victory is already being registered. The mountain you see behind me was held by the enemy forces until yesterday. Now it's completely freed. The morale of the army is incredible and is exciting. The war is ongoing with a lot of victory for us. We have captured Kazakhstan and we will recapture Shifra and Baraka tonight. It was a few days back Ethiopia's Prime Minister announced he would head to the war front to lead the war against TPLF from there. 
he has once again reiterated the importance of his mission. We will never back down until Ethiopia's freedom is guaranteed. What we need is to see a strong and independent Ethiopia through our sacrifice. We want to be Ethiopians or we will be Ethiopia in our soil. We are sure we will achieve all this victory. We know our people are behind us. Our brothers and sisters in the diaspora too are echoing our interests with all that they can. The elite are also doing the same. TPLF force also continue vying to march into the capital Addis Ababa, calling Abiy's administration, quote, a dying regime, end of quote. On the other hand, many thousands continue to be enlisted to be part of the National Army. Experts and observers say that number is dramatically increasing since the Prime Minister went to the active war zones. Grumtala CGTN, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. China has issued a white paper on its relationship with Africa. Titled China and Africa in the New Era, a Partnership of Equals, the document details past experiences and how similar aims and goals have brought China and Africa closer together. CGTN's Biran has more. This is the first white paper China has released on overall cooperation between China and Africa. It's also the first white paper that details cooperative achievements between China and another region. The white paper says Africa's foreign aid from China between 2013 and 2018 totaled 217 billion RMB. From 2000 to 2020, China helped African countries build more than 13,000 kilometers of roads and railway. After the COVID-19 pandemic struck Africa, China offered 120 batches of test chemicals, protective gears, masks and ventilators to 53 African countries. The 8th Ministerial Conference of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation is to be held in Dakar. In these times of crisis, China and Africa's meeting shows the mutual trust and support between the two sides. Entering a new era, Chinese President Xi Jinping has put forward the principles of China's Africa policy. The white paper elaborates on these principles and details the pursuit of shared interest between the two sides. The core part of this kind of relationship is to respect equal respect to each other and uh, equally treat each other equally and uh, to share their development and their fruits. Looking forward to the, uh, the, the future development of both sides, uh, the China will put more investment in the area of uh, infrastructure building in Africa and try to help the African countries to build their free trade areas. Furthermore, I think China in Africa uh, will try to strengthen their cooperation in the new area, for example, the energy, the green energy area, the digital technical area, and uh, even the, uh, the, the out space right, uh, area. China-Africa relations are in prime. Since 2015 and 2018 summits of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, 10 major projects and 8 major initiatives of economic development and trade were adopted. More areas of cooperation, ranging from social development to culture, science to poverty reduction, are being raised to new levels. Biran, CJTN, Beijing.
Now, the white paper captures both the journey and the benefits of the partnership between African states and China. For more on this, let's bring in Dr. Emmanuel Zwanbin, a doctoral fellow and a China-Africa expert at the United States International University, Africa. He joins us live from Lagos, Nigeria. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Zwanbin. Now, the China-Africa White Paper explains the principles of China's Africa policy. It speaks about sincerity, results, friendship and good faith. How, in your view, is this policy changing the fortunes and uh, development prospects of African nations? Thank you for having me. Um, this paper is coming at the right time. Um, the post COVID is uh, a period that Africa is battling with the devastation of its economy and all sectors. And this paper is a commitment, uh, if I would say a rededication to China's commitment to Africa. And this paper is saying, look, you have tested us, we have worked together, and now we are in a situation we will work with you again to solve all the problems that you are going to. So I expect that this paper would uh, stimulate a stronger bond between Africa and China, and then putting together on the table the issues to be solved, whether economic issues, uh, whether about trade, whether about infrastructure, whether additional funding to the infrastructure investment going on across Africa, um, especially at this period where Africa is about to step out to the Africa Free Continental Trade Area, where we've got a lot of strategic infrastructure required to boost this, um, this agreement. So I therefore believe that the wire paper is a real commitment. Say, look, you have tested elsewhere, you have tested us, and we have recommitted ourselves to pushing the goals of Africa and the South South Indeed, and of course you, you mentioned the timing of this white paper. It's being released uh, just ahead of the ministerial meeting of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation that will begin uh, in Senegal on Monday. Uh, in your view, what are the areas that will see greater cooperation between Africa and China, specifically given today's realities and Africa's needs? Well, basically we would see um, a new discussion about pushing infrastructure in Africa. Uh, COVID-19 has affected almost every country, and therefore, unlike Africa, where we are really struggling with transport infrastructure, um, ICT, integration of the financial system and trading platform and so on. So there will be a new discussion, first and foremost, dealing with financial investment. And African countries, because of the impact of the COVID, they are really struggling, financial crisis is very obvious. And so I would see a situation where African countries will reach a compromise and consensus where it will be easier for African countries to be able to push on in this crisis situation. And therefore, infrastructure, like I said, would basically form part of the key issues to be talked about. Transport infrastructure, energy infrastructure, um, financial infrastructure, ICT infrastructure, basically these are the key instruments that Africa needs to, to push on with the Africa Free Concerns area. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Emmanuel Zwanbin, for sharing your insights today with us. Joining us, of course, from Lagos.
Now, China Media Group and 36 African media partners have signed a joint declaration to deepen cooperation and promote African and Chinese voices and stories on diverse platforms and to wider audiences. The declaration was the culmination of a China-Africa media cooperation forum held both online and offline in Nairobi, Kenya. CGTN's Daniel Arabmoy reports. Ladies and gentlemen, China Media Group has set up a new collaboration platform with African media. The Our African Partners CMG Media Cooperation Forum brings together under one umbrella CMG and African media. We realize that amplifying the voice of Africa's state broadcaster on the world stage will require collaboration among African broadcasters in telling the African story. For this reason, I appreciate CGTN for creating a very robust, rich portal dubbed the African Link, where African broadcasters or African broadcasters can upload and download, download preferred content. The portal is one of the many cooperation efforts between CMG and 160 media agencies from 49 African countries. There is also The Bond, which is a collection of Chinese films and TV programs, along with prize-winning game shows that air in Africa. The African Union of Broadcasting, though its networks of content exchange, has made available to its members, including China, world sources, verified information that reflects Africa in all its glory and diversity. In return, the AUB issues hope that the Chinese broadcaster will join the network. To this end, China could offer more television programs on new technology, education, and science to bridge the gap in information demand. In the opening remarks, Huang Quanmeng, head of the publicity department of the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee, said. China and Africa have already stood as a community with a shared future. A China-aided project has helped some 13 million households across the African continent access satellite television. CMG President Shanghai Shihong in his address said CMG has long been reporting on China-Africa development and building up cooperation. Experts called on African broadcasters to take advantage of China's experience in digital media. China has played a very important role in, in, in showing how technological advancement can work to the benefit of its people. We in Africa are hungry to emulate that particular example of China and to see how we can use technology in order to bring about better news flow and meet the aspirations of the African people. Media representatives, policy makers and experts from China and over 40 African countries attended the event held both online and offline in Nairobi, Kenya. 36 African media partners signed a declaration to deepen cooperation and amplify Chinese and African voices on the world stage. Daniel Arapmoy, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya. Time now for a short break. Here's what's still ahead on the program. Coming up, Burkina Faso's president promises to reform the military 
as protests persist over insecurity. So this is it, I'm just about to be shot. Here, bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about have three critical <laughs> bridges here in Malawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces who are replying with gas. Gas just came in. So it's all begun now. Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. Just got to be careful here with some gunshots. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. This is the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from the Within front line. Within clear view of this front line position. The president of Burkina Faso, Roque Kabore, promised to end dysfunction within the military in a speech on Thursday night as the nation braced for more protests against worsening insecurity. Three Burkina Faso soldiers died and 11 militants were killed during an attack on the troops on Wednesday, the latest of three attacks since November 14th that, left, that have left over 60 security forces and more than a dozen civilians dead. Hundreds of protesters took to the streets of the capital, Wagadougou, last week, demanding Kabore resign for failing to rein in militants linked to al-Qaeda and Islamic State, who have waged a four-year insurgency. Opponents urged people to stage fresh protests on Saturday, and schools were shut across the country in anticipation of unrest. Depuis quelques jours, le drame du Nata a engendré des réactions diverses. In the past few days, the Inata attack has generated diverse reactions, all of them understandable given the circumstances. Yes, I understand your message that invites us to change our paradigm. Individually and collectively, we have to be part of the change in order to end incivility, challenges against authority, and all the behavior that does not make us good Burkinabes. As president of Burkina Faso, I'd like to invite everyone to stay reasonable and to avoid believing that it is by breaking the thermometer that we recover from a fever. The people of Burkina Faso are allowed to express themselves freely on public affairs. I care about this particularly. Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Mnangagwa, is calling for the urgent and unconditional return of looted African artifacts being held by museums in the West. He made the comments at the third international conference on African cultures in the capital, Harare. CGTN's Daniel Plasker has the story. A convening of art and handicrafts in the heart of Southern Africa. The third international conference of African cultures concluded Thursday in Zimbabwe's capital, Harare. Ceremonial masks, pottery, traditional weaponry and elaborately woven basketware, all under one roof. But the most prominent artifacts are those that are absent. The three-day conference at the National Gallery of Zimbabwe has brought together scholars, historians, and even royalty 
The theme is the repatriation of artifacts looted by European colonizers. It's a chance for people to come together and admire the continent's rich physical heritage, but it's also an opportunity to debate where and with who these artifacts ultimately belong. We think the so-called museums in the West are, I would like to call them crime scenes. If the colonial masters want to heal the colonial wounds, this is the process. International pressure for Western institutions to return stolen art has reached a fever pitch, with even Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Mungagwa, echoing the call. The retain of our cultural and archives and human remains and trenched in foreign lands and jurisdictions must be vigorously pursued. Uncountable troves of precious products were stolen from Africa over the centuries. And while some, like Nigeria's famous Benin bronzes, have begun trickling back, many here want to see African thinkers take the lead in the decision-making process. They don't want to return them. They want to loan you. They want to say, you guys cannot keep them properly. But before when they pick them, they work properly. So why are you defining what is worth to us and what isn't? The same people who looted our heritage are the same people was standing on top of the mountain singing about the issues. So we thought there is a need for us to gather other African scholars, curators, museum directors, archivists in Zimbabwe, in the African soil, to deliberate on issues that matter on us, because we are the ones who are the bereaved. And yet those who are the perpetrators are the ones who are leading the discussion. It's a discussion that is arguably making headway. Just last week, French President Emmanuel Macron agreed to return 26 plundered artifacts to the Republic of Benin. But scholars and advocates say it's far from enough. It's not that they are giving us because they feel sorry and they feel, oh, we're so bad. It's because we want them and we're going to make sure that we get them. We are very lucky that the, great, the pyramids of Giza were heavy to carry. The Great Zimbabwe ruins were heavy to carry. The Victoria Falls was also is uncarable. Otherwise, the colonial museums would have been filled with these objects. Daniel Plasker in Harare, Zimbabwe, for CGTN. Your business news up next. Raman Yang has the latest. Thank you very much, Lindy. Here's what's coming up in business. Zimbabwe is forecasting economic growth of 5.5% in 2022. We'll have the details. And Shell is hoping to find oil and gas deposits along South Africa's coastline. The details coming up shortly. Africa is the nexus of enterprise. And global business will tell you why it matters. From the mega investment projects to multi-billion dollar mergers and acquisitions. Africa today collects just in terms of revenues from taxes alone $545 billion a year. If you take 10% of that and you devote it to the energy sector, problem solved. All this on Global Business, weekdays at this time on CGTN. Let's start in Zimbabwe. The country's finance minister, Mpilinkove, plans to double expenditure and is forecasting 5.5% GDP growth in 2022. That forecast was contained in the 2022 budget that he tabled in the country's parliament on Thursday. From Harare, here's Farai Mokutuya with the numbers. 
Professor Mutuli Ngube's 927.3 billion Zimbabwe dollar, about 8.8 billion US dollar budget for the coming year, will be financed by projected revenues of just over 8 billion US dollars, with the marginal 1.5% of GDP deficit to be covered through domestic borrowing. The way in which the finance minister plans to generate more revenue, though, is of concern to some. I think you can see how a number of measures have been put in place somehow to try to deal with the leakages and at the same time increasing the tax base. That alone can be a threat, especially if you look at the sweet tax or the sinful tax on cigarettes or tobacco. It had been revised upwards to about $25 uh, from $20 then pay $1,006, can we say. Then if you also look at the move on the cell phone business where you hear there is a tax of about $50 which has to be paid prior to registration of a handset, for example, such kind of a tax in a certain way is impacting on the poor more than the rich. The biggest allocations were to agriculture as the government aims to build on last year's bumper harvest, education and health. Treasury reiterated the economy will grow by 7.8% this year, but acknowledges there are pressures that could militate against the attainment of 2022 targets. I think there are a number of downside risks. Uh, first and foremost, we are seeing a runaway government expenditure. I think there's been a huge increase in, in government expenditure and also the financing of that through, through domestic borrowing, through the creation of money is... Uh, uh, resulted in instability within the macroeconomy. We are seeing inflationary pressures. Um, they are being generated. Inflation has actually been, been going up for the past uh, two months. The inflation threat as well as the exchange rate volatility will somehow render the budget a bit ineffective. Within the second half of 2022, I think you will see either a need for a surplus or a supplementary budget, can we call it, or the minister then has to put up with it to say, look, any funding activities which will happen will happen outside the budget. Professor Nube says the government will issue U.S. dollar-denominated government bonds up to 100 million U.S. dollars, which will raise funds for infrastructure development that is seen as key to engendering international confidence and attracting investment. Farai Mwakutuya, CGTN, Harare, Zimbabwe. Let's talk about the fossil fuels firm Shell. It's about to embark on a seismic survey for oil and gas deposits along South Africa's coastline. Now, the company will conduct the seismic blasting just off the country's wild coast in the Eastern Cape. But that move has been met with quite a bit of fierce opposition from environmental activists. They say that this survey could cause untold damage to the pristine marine environment. Here's CGTN's Travis Andrews with that report. Energy and petrochemicals giant Shell is on the hunt and they're looking for oil and gas deposits along South Africa's coastline. The company is focusing its efforts on the wild coast and will be conducting a seismic survey for the next five months. The move has been welcomed by the African Energy Chamber as a step forward for South Africa's energy independence. I think what Shell is doing is actually on the right track. There is great potential for gas, for natural gas in that coast, and that could really help especially if you tell in South Africa to phase out on coal, and then you can discover huge potential of gas. It could also help if you could even discover petroleum, it would help because South Africa is also a net importer of petroleum, of petroleum products. So 
It is a win-win. Not everyone sees it that way though. And some environmental activists and concerned citizens have staged protests against the move. They believe the seismic blasting, which is the firing of shockwave emissions into the ocean's floor, is detrimental to the marine ecosystem. The marine life is going to be devastated by the type of exploration that they're doing. And it just seems that it has happened behind closed doors. And Shell can come in and just do what they like. And we are trying to stand up for our ocean and people who quietly fish the oceans and don't do any harm. While the right to protest the move has been welcomed, some believe the country needs new energy sources to move beyond the constant load shedding. And this criticism in those efforts. Shell reached out to the affected communities and traditional leaders and had, had constant engagement with them. And you're really talking to the people. Shell has reached out to the government. They have done various environmental impact, in, in, impact uh, evaluations. And then it all came out possible that this work can go through. Now these seismic surveys will be conducted 20 kilometers offshore to check if there's sufficient quantities for exploration. The move also comes after Total Energy struck luck with their drilling campaign recently further down that coastline. Comes our news, CGTN, Cape Town. On to Nigeria now. The trade deficit over there fell to $340 million in July compared to $2.4 billion a month earlier. That's according to data from the country's central bank. The CBN is attributing that improvement to a reduction of imports. And that, of course, follows a push by the government to try and close the trade gap. CGTN's Deji Bademosi has the details. Even though the central bank attributes the decline in the trade deficit to what it calls risk sentiments emanating from the spread of Delta variant of the COVID-19, analysts argue it goes beyond that. That's a major liquidity crisis in the foreign exchange market. So clearly, that will be a major factor in all of this. Secondly, is the fact that the exchange rate depreciation is significantly affecting the level of imports in the economy. Because we are talking of an operating exchange rate now of around the 550, 560, and so on and so forth. Of course, the CBN talks about uh, 411, 412, or 413 as the, as the official exchange rate. But if you talk to operators in the economy, they, they can't get the, the, the forex to buy at this rate. Many of them, they make requests, they get 10%, 20%, 25% of, of their demand from the, from the NAFEX window. Nigeria's trade deficit has always been a big talking point in the country. Last year's trade deficit of $17.7 billion is one of the country's worst in 20 years, exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The government has been seeking to close the trade gap, but the problem is that apart from crude oil and gas, the country's exports don't amount to very much. In the data released by the central bank, crude oil and gas exports component remained dominant, representing 89.7% of total exports. Though non-oil exports earnings grew by 35% to $460 million in July 2021 from $340 million in July 2020, it only constituted 10.3% of total exports. Uh, because of structural and other issues, uh, it has been very difficult for those who are in production to produce competitively. And international trade is about competitiveness. It's not about sentiments. 
You have to be competitive in price. You have to be competitive in quality. Unfortunately, we don't have that environment here. Many of those in production are struggling. That is why if you look at even the structure of the economy, the service sector is now accounting for well, close to 50% of our GDP. The government is pushing hard to reduce the country's import bill and close the trade gap. But for a people that have for long depended heavily on imports for their consumption, the government is realizing that weaning them away from the imports and getting the country to produce more at home is not an easy task. DG Badimasi, CGTN, Lagos. And we're still in Nigeria for this story. The country sets to start sanctioning employers who are yet to comply with a minimum wage increase that became law two years ago. The government raised Nigeria's minimum wage to around $70 a month, roughly $840 every year. But only a few public and private employers have actually implemented that new wage level. CGTN's Kelechi Mekalam reports. Obed Galadima is a cleaner in a local cleaning firm in Nigeria's capital, Abuja. The 20-year-old works an average 10 hours daily, but only earns a monthly salary of 20,000 naira, which is equivalent to about $48. The amount is far below the minimum wage and barely enough to cater for his basic needs. That's why he's pleased with government's plan to enforce the minimum wage law. If the government enforces this minimum wage, now I'd be able to save something small and send some to my family because 20,000 naira isn't sustainable by the time I take out my transportation, feeding and other expenditure. Nigeria's minimum wage was pegged at $40 monthly until 2019 when the government adopted $70 as the new minimum wage. The National Labor Union is however worried that some state governments and private employers have yet to comply with the law. The union sees government's move as a step in the right direction. It has only been the, the Nigerian Labour Congress pushing for the full implementation. But ordinarily, it's a law of the Federation. The minimum wage is an act. It's not an award. Which means anybody who is not implementing the minimum wage is running foul of the law of the land. Though a welcome development, analysts doubt that the uniform minimum Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, CGTN Africa Live uh, dealing with a myriad of issues impacting uh, Africa and indeed the international community in general. That's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal this special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, November 26, 2021. We've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. But I thank all of our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at Pan-African News. .blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with uh, the music of trumpeter Kenny Durham uh, with, from the album entitled Quiet Kenny. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.